Everybody is murderous in their intentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back! Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into evil folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so maybe I'm not real. Hello the internet and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast. A member of the Agora Podcast Network. Where we discuss political science and popular culture. As always hosted by Peter Sleeman and Brock Rodham. Okay guys, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year's. This is the first episode that Brock and I are recording. No it's not. In the New Year. Yes it is. The first one we're recording. There might be other ones that come out, but they weren't recorded uh, <laughs> in 2017. That's because we're delayed. <laughs> we had a good holiday break. Yeah. This one is the first one recorded in 2017, uh, just a couple of days after Trump's inauguration, which is fun. Yay. Um, so, well, depends who you are. Uh, for Trump. Yay. <laughs> um <laughs> Today we're going to be discussing, I know we've been going through our ideology um, stream, but we decided to take a little bit of a break from that uh, so that you guys can digest more. Um, And today we're going to be discussing an issue that Brock and I both find incredibly concerning in today's world, which is economic um, inequality, which we believe is a political failing. Uh, rather, than, we believe it's a political issue rather than an economic one, um, which is, I think, not many people take that stance as much. Um, well, they're obviously entwined. I mean, it, you're involving politics in economics, but we wouldn't say the problem is caused by economics. Mm. It's more it's politics, accurate political regulation. But uh, we'll get into we'll that. Get into we have to do the podcast of the month. Yes. So, podcaster of the month for January 2017 is a new podcast on the Agora Podcast Network. It's called Reconsider. Uh, this is hosted by uh, longtime Agora guys, uh, Xander and Eric. If you guys listen to our other podcasts, you will have heard them. Um, they take an in-depth pressing political... They take a, a look into the in-depth pressing political issues that are facing Western democracies today with a fresh, researched, and challenging perspective. So a somewhat similar podcast to the one that we're doing today, but they come at it from a much more historical perspective, whereas Brock and I obviously Which tackled. could be a lot more interesting than ours, but um, we still that. like talking about science fiction don't, stuff. Don't say that. <laughs> it's not more interesting than ours. Ours no, but, is the most interesting. It's the best in the world. Well, it's as fantastic. As, as long as it's interesting it's, to us, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best. But besides, I think... <laughs> Reconsider is a cool name for a political trends podcast. It gives yeah. us a chance to think about... Um, what happened and our feelings about it and how we think we should treat those events. Absolutely. But, uh, certainly give it, give it a listen and find yep. out for yourself. Yep. So that's our podcast of the month. Go give them a listen. Um, and um, then also listen to ours and theirs. Listen to everybody's. Just never stop listening to podcasts is the, is the rule. <laughs> um, but today, yes, we're going to be discussing... So we're going to be discussing economic inequality, but I, um, I had some interesting experiences in Boston over Christmas where... I found that uh, things are incredibly polarized over there. I, mean, I thought, you know, we've got our issues and our tensions, our political um, sensitivities here in South Africa. You know, we've mm. got a very racialized past and a very um, a past of severe struggle. Mm. But uh, 
you know, we still, I still com- compared to some of the issues in the United States, I think we're more inclined to talk about stuff and um, so, some debates are certainly more open. Mm. Over there, you're like, you're either Democrat or you're Republican and, and you, if whichever one you are, you don't talk to the other party. Mm. It's just, there, there are issues that you are closed cases um, and we're not going to discuss them. And so there's like this very little political dialogue. It's it's very polarized. I was a bit surprised by that. Yeah, and um, actually, on that, so I have a similar experience in, in Australia. Um, uh, and I believe that, you know, you're either a Green or you're a Liberal or you're a Labour member. There's very little crossover. There's very little discussion. Um, if there is discussion, which is, it's shouting a lot of the time. <laughs> um, and I like, and normally the loudest one wins. Yeah, exactly. And racism in Australia. Sorry to all our Australian listeners, but um, racism is pretty bad here. Um, which obviously racism is terrible in South Africa. But the difference is in South Africa, we never stop talking about the the, the conversation never ends. The dialogue is always ongoing, which makes South Africans a little bit tired. A lot of the time, but yeah. we're not. We're never yeah, afraid to to start a discussion. So yeah, I mean, I, I find well, that. sometimes we are. I, w- I wouldn't say it's that easy to talk about race in South Africa. It's um, you know, it's still a sensitive issue, con- especially considering how um, persistent the economic difficulties are of lower class and especially black South Africans. Um, the situation has not improved for them, and their difficulties are certainly not going away. Um, I don't want to say their difficulties, you know, as if they're two camps, but certainly, you know, inequality in South Africa is noticeable. And that's one of the reasons why we, you know, we knew when I were talking yesterday about all the, the, the trends in global politics. Um, it was quite easy for me to identify that besides the issues that are just close to my heart and that, you know, sort of stir up emotions in, in, in I wouldn't say like a normal person, you know, we all feel very sorry for, um, immigrants and migrants and, Refugees and there are other issues like pollution that are always troubling, global climate change, um, planet warming up, the you know this, the overfishing of oceans, the extinction of species. The, the, those things always sort of plug at our heartstrings. But honestly, the thing that gets me is the inequality, the levels of inequality in uh, in the world. Mm. Um, so let, let's get onto that. Let's discuss some of the dynamics around it and why it bothers us, what it looks like. Um, but bear in mind, please, whatever we say in this episode, remember we are not economists and we don't claim to have a complete idea or perspective mm. on what's, uh, what the data is saying. But uh, nevertheless, it's something that we still feel passionate enough to talk about. Mm. And I, well, I think what's important, uh, first off, is to put this in a bit of context. And I think we've, we've made this case a couple of times. Um, firstly, just on, on what you said there, I think it's important to note that there's a lot of intersectionality with what we're discussing today. So, why do you put out such unnecessarily long words? Intersection intersectionality is a very good word for this type of issue. Okay, so I'm about to explain. Why don't what you it just means. say it's so that our listeners just say, call it, so our listeners can go to parties and they can speak to a girl and say things like, "Yes, I find that the intersectionality of issues is very important." That girl will then make out with our listener. Or that guy. You are and such a terrible sexist <laughs> bigot. Why? That's not you sexist. You assume all our listeners are male. You no, assume all our I listeners girl or are, guy. are interested I, I in females. Said, I just said girl or guy. Or you got so much walking back to do right now. <laughs> I might just cut this whole I'm bit. sorry, <laughs> listeners. I apologize on behalf of my oblivious hosting partner. Anyway, there are issues of intersectionality that come into play here. And that is... Obviously, when we talk about um, income inequality, income inequality affects different people differently. So if you are a single white male living in New York, 
you might be suffering a huge amount from income inequality, but the level of income inequality that you're suffering might be very different from that suffered from a single black female in Rwanda. Um, so there are intersectionalities of race, of gender, of religion. There's a whole bunch of different ones. And we obviously cannot get into any, uh, you know, all of them today. We're going to be discussing this from a very kind of open political sense. Uh, but I just thought it would be but important it, to make that clear. But it, it is, yeah, it's very important because it, uh, we need to, we shouldn't underestimate the, the drastic power and the level of influence of inequality. I think what you're trying to say is it knows no boundaries. It's not like it's inequality only affects people of a certain type. Mm. Um, there's certainly correlations. You could say it affects people of a certain type more, especially in a country like South Africa, as I earlier illustrated that because of our political past, um, poorer people in South Africa tend to be black. Um, they have, you know, they were discriminated in the, in the apartheid era and they're still suffering institutional and social inequalities today. Mm. Um, but, but on the whole, throughout the, you know, throughout the world, inequality, you can be on the, on the, you can be on the losing side of things, no matter what your age, race, class, gender, whatever it is. Um, it's, uh, it persists through a very, sometimes tangible, but mostly intangible set of structural forces and that, uh, they can hold people back and don't give them the same opportunities as it grants people who perhaps have higher wealth or higher income. Yeah. And I think that the, what, what makes it interesting today, is that in the past, for most of recorded history, there was, has obviously always been, econ let's call it economic inequality, because income inequality is very specific to when you're earning a wage. But for the most yeah. of human history, you had the vast majority of people living really shitty lives, just the fucking worst. You know, they were really, yeah. it was bad. And then you had a very small percentage, you know, probably less than 1% of the population living fucking awesome lives, you know, kings and queens. and the, But when you actually, if you take all the wealth that they had, and when we talk about wealth, we're talking about, you know, their intangible, uh, you know, their, 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 their liquid assets that might be any currency they might have, and obviously their yeah. property owned and cows that they might have and things like that. So while a peasant might own one cow, the king or lord who governs over him maybe owns a hundred cows. So, you know, that peasant is worth, 1% of the Lord's total wealth. So there was income inequality, but, you know, you're still measuring it in cows. At the end of the day, the the life expectancy, you know, the life differences, it was just like a, an upgrade of the peasant. Um, and so if you think of it like an Age of Empires thing, you've got your king in your castle, the peasants <laughs> are just like, so do a, a research upgrade to turn the peasant into a king. But in the last, <laughs> in the last 150 years... We've seen something that has never, ever happened in human history, which is the creation of a middle class, essentially. So, I mean, it's not really 150 years. We're basically talking from the beginnings of capitalist society, which you can date back to the 1700s with the, with the growth in the merchant class. And with the creation of a capitalist system and... Uh, Brooke, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong, but my, my definition of the capitalist system in its simplest form is that you have a business or some something that you sell or a service that you provide, you get paid for that, you make a profit, so you're se always selling your service and your good at slightly higher than the whatever labor or goods that went into making it, which and that surplus capital is that surplus capital is your wealth. You then re um, 
You then reinvest that money into your business, and that's how you grow. And the assumption in capitalist free market economics is that that whole system is best left alone um, to kind of run itself because people are more rational and they, they're the best at making market decisions. Yeah, is it, was that you know, it's a fair, simple definition? Yeah, it, one, I've got so many things to add there. Yes, I think your definition is fairly, fairly close, um, but when we talk about in human history, the, the, the growth of, of wealth, um, and of productivity, um, contributing to, to value in the economic value chain, uh, across the world. We don't, you know, what are we talking about there? What does that mean that we've, that the, that GDP has grown? I mean, mm. these figures and, um, the statistics that are used nowadays, the indicators that are used tend to be, people don't really know what they, what they mean to, to one's life. Mm. If, if I have a business, um, even a fairly large one, and we are involved, like as per your definition, in creating value, um, changing uh, the changing the materials around us into something of greater value to someone else. We um, insert ourselves along that value chain, and whatever that uh, whatever the demand is for the good or service I provide um, is matched by the price I need, and I gain an, an income from that. And hopefully, there's a bit of profit built in, so I can afford to invest and grow. I'm still in. You know, I'm still working mostly at a microeconomic level. Um, so when, so when we tend to place that narrative, that description in the, in the, in the global trend of economic growth in the, of the, in the world, mm. it's difficult to, to picture that in hard terms. It's difficult to say, this is what it means. This is what it looks like. Mm. Um, people might think of the growth of population, the growth of cities or urban dwellings or rural dwellings or, um, improved infrastructure, you know, the changing of our physical environment. Mm. But to say that someone's worth, that their net worth is $60 billion, like Bill Gates. I mean, does that mean that he can go, you know, that he's got that figure sitting in his bank balance? No, there's so many other assets that are taken into account there. Mm. How much is Microsoft worth? Mm. How much is he worth to Microsoft? Who's actually state calculating that worth, mm. that value? Um, so, so it's, and this is, I suppose it's just my skeptical side coming out is who's to say that there's that amount of wealth that actually exists, um, in our economy. So it has changed, you know, I suppose that all changed when we moved off the gold standard of currency mm. um, and allowed sp- speculation in financial markets. Um, but but you know, that, that's not to say that that's not to say that that all the work that has been done over the last four hundred years has amounted to nothing. You know, the, the, the global trend that you indicated earlier of us producing more and making more and creating more value definitely exists. Yeah, because that's the thing. I mean, you can operate as a as a business. I mean, everybody imagine yourself that you're a business owner, which you, some of you might be. Um, and you produce a good and you sell that good onto the market or, you know, you're a farmer, you sell, I don't know, potatoes at your local market. Now you can sell those potatoes, use the money to buy extra potatoes, uh, or for, you know, enough potatoes for the next harvest. And with the extra money, you go and buy, uh, you know, whatever you want. Now you, your wealth hasn't necessarily, your wealth hasn't increased. You have converted potatoes into something else, but, if you take that money and you spend it all, you know, you didn't buy something cool for yourself. You ended up buying more potatoes. Therefore, next season, you could bring even more potatoes to market. Um, and then you could invest in better potato growing technology. I don't know what makes, I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, you know, so now you're <laughs> producing even more potatoes. So you've, you've used your initial potato growth to expand your capacity to produce potatoes and thereby expanded your wealth. Now that's, 
I mean, that's economics at its simplest. But obviously, what Brock and I talk about when we talk about capitalist economic models at a state level is when the government says, okay, we're going to be capitalist. And the best example that I've, I've found, the most clear example of this is why did England defeat Spain back in the day? And one of the biggest reasons was because Queen Elizabeth, yes, the first, yeah. Queen Elizabeth the first, <laughs> um, started instead of directing the way her economy should go, which is a system that is more known as mercantilism. So the government takes a very active role in the economy and moves the certain blocks around. What she did was she took her royal money and she invested it in different businesses. Um, one of which was Walter Riley as an explorer and he eventually got his head cut off, but still, you know, he made a whole bunch of money. And because she was able to invest a whole bunch of money in a whole bunch of different businesses, she got a return on her investment, making her wealthier. But all those businesses did much better as well, meaning that England at the time started to thrive. Now, Spain took the opposite track and had a very mercantilist way of doing things and had a government-directed way of basically extracting wealth from the uh, from their colonies in South America and using that to directly buy forces for their armed for their army. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't lead to a huge amount of innovation because uh, they didn't actually invest in anybody's talents. So when the showdown happened and you had the British versus the Spanish Armada, you had a whole bunch of fairly cool ships on the Spanish side, but much more ingenuity on the British side in the form of weaponry that they had, and the Spanish got owned. And this is one of the things that capitalism is very good at, because it, it spreads, well, when it's in its best shape, it spreads the capital around, and it invests in people with talent, and those people rise up because they will produce a good that is better than anybody else's around them, Therefore, people will buy that good and they will earn even more money. So this is what, in economic terms, and Adam Smith called this, the invisible hand of the economy. It will create a situation where the balance between producer and consumer will set the, the, the what we call the equilibrium price, set the equilibrium price of a product, and whoever produces that product the best wins. But... And this is where, now that, that's the end of the economics lecture for this podcast. We are done. Because now we get into the situation that Brock and I hate, because that's not what capitalism has done, unfortunately. What we have today yeah, in, is a massive amount of wealth, but the wealth is also very concentrated at the top. In, in capitalist um, law theory, uh, Adam Smith designed this um, economic system that was that would take care of itself through the principles of supply and demand um, and the forces created around goods and value, you would have prices assigned to whatever people think um, they need or what, and they would assign those prices based on what the, they thought those things were worth. Mm. So there was uh, an inherent equilibrium in the transfer of goods and services. Mm-hmm. Um, how that benefited people was it, it laid the contributor of value to the person. So it saw the person as the one contributing the value, so they should be the one earning the income or earning the value of that transaction. Yeah. And uh, provided that they manage themselves and their skills you know, well and uh, inequality and they try to enhance their their production, then they would be benefiting from that, from that structure and from that contractual service. Mm-hmm. The problem is 
the, well, that theory exists, and it, it and it was well. It's honestly, it's quite beautiful. It's really a very well designed theory, and um, it, it's it's proven to work. It was, however, it works better on the micro level, because yeah. when Anna Smith was writing that from from the heart of Scotland, he was living in you know in the eight, in eighteenth century Britain, um, where communities were fairly small, where people all had tradable services. Um, and it was to a certain degree, I'm sure there was inequality that existed, but mm. to, um, to, to a degree, there was, um, there was an opportunity for everybody to, to contribute to the economy, to provide some value to it and to be able to grow through innovation. Mm. When you take those principles and you apply them across the world, as we can see now in the global economy that has become so connected and interconnected via the forces of globalization, those opportunities don't exist for everybody. Those same mm. level of, of skill sets don't exist. The opportunities to gain and improve skill sets don't exist. The, the um, opportunities to interact and come into contact with innovate with innovative ideas mm. um, to, don't exist um, in rural Rwanda the same way that they exist in Edinburgh. So the people who live in those different situations are going to be afforded different opportunities to engage with and benefit from the global economy. Mm. Hence, we have the unequal distribution of wealth with, like you said, the highest concentration at the top um, being equalized by a, by a mass dearth of, concentra- of, of wealth at the bottom you know, um, for the poorest people. So the rich, what is the statistic that we found out this week was the eight richest people in the world control the same amount of wealth as the poorest 3.6 billion. Hmm. Um, so if you could draw that on like a pyramid, you know, you would, it's so easy to say that inequality is a problem, um, in, in the world. And the reason why it's so close to our hearts, the reason why we care about it so much, well, probably one, we've, um, it doesn't help that we don't understand a lot of it. Um, a lot of the economics that goes into that inequality, and we certainly don't think that the lives of poor people have deteriorated over time, that the activity of the global economy has raised the standard of living to a small degree. Um, mm. But the real problem is that if wealth redistribution were to be carried out in a more just uh, in, a, in a more just means or fashion, then there are so many there's so much potential that is untapped, that could possibly contribute a lot to the to the global economy that's currently sitting unemployed in a street uh, in Rio de Janeiro, for example. Exactly. And so, I, but I, I think as well that, you know, the capitalist system is incredibly efficient at producing wealth. Um, you know, as you said, yeah. the quality of life worldwide is better than it ever has been before. You know, the poorest of the poor yeah. today are still better off than the poorest of the poor were 100 years ago. But that's yeah. not really necessarily the point. The point is it's not necessarily an issue of economics. The The issue is an, econ- is an issue of justice. Is it yeah. just to have a system where, you know, if if the eight richest, you know, if, if, if what, we, what did we work out last night, Brock? You know, the, the global GDP is, you know, whatever no number it is. I have what the global GDP is. But it's, you know, it must be in the trillions of dollars, which is, you know, super yeah. high. The fact is, is that when you have, when you have 1% of that population controlling, even if they controlled only 30% of that wealth, that is an unjust world. And in this, in this way, the, the term unjust means unfair. And, you know, th- this is where I can Im- immediately imagine a, a really bad 
horrible conservative person saying, oh, you millennials are just complaining because the world is unfair. And that, but the thing is, it's not that they were saying that the world is unfair. It's the level of unfairness, the level of unjustness that is going along with this. Because there are always going to be wealthy people and poor people. That's until we reach the yeah. Star Trek economy, which I've already proven will, is the best. Um, <laughs> until we get to that point, do you, that, that, that is a reality that we have to deal with. The issue is, is that it's unfathomable how rich Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates are. I, I don't think that anybody listening to this podcast, unless Bill Gates is listening, in which case, can we have some money, please? Um, I can't imagine that anybody listening to this podcast even has the slightest idea how fucking rich Bill Gates is, that he can literally do anything, have anything he wants at any point of time, it, which is insane. Like, it's just, it, you're, it's very difficult to comprehend. And this is where Brock and I come in from the political science perspective to say that it, but it is not the role of the capitalist global economy to redistribute wealth because that's, uh, you know, that it's not designed for that. It is the role of government to monitor justice, though. That is one of the principal roles of government. And therefore, it's well, not the role just to monitor, but to enforce justice. Yeah, to, to enforce, to enforce a just living conditions. How should people live? The normative condition. Um, and th- this is why we think that government has, has failed. Yeah, yeah. I like what you said about uh, about the the level of unjustness or unfairness. It's not that that's not just the problem. Um, like you said, it's it's first about admitting that the level of unjustness needs de- demands attention. If you write yes. it off and you say yes, but the world's unfair, just deal with it. You are ignorant, unjust, inconsiderate, and we deserve all your money. Whereas if you admit that that level of injustice demands attention and you participate in a process that um, makes it less unjust, well, then we can start talking about at what point does it start to become justice. Um, yeah. That, yeah. But that's that's the debate you can only have after you admit the fact that the level of inequality right now in the world has never been higher um, and it demands immediate attention. So yeah. just to keep things in perspective, while the trajectory of the lowest earners of income um, and the lowest owners of wealth and the lowest um, owners of wealth has improved over the last hundred years. It's improved to a minimal degree, um, but nevertheless, the, the rate of improvement in the wealth and income of the richest individuals has increased significantly. So, if you can imagine the, the if you can imagine two two lines proceeding like train tracks, they would run away from each other. That the oh. earning and wealth ownership potential. Uh, of the of the top earners, at the, that line would 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 be a lot steeper. The rate of increase would be a lot higher, mm. uh, which which makes the gap between the two ever increasing, mm. and that's what needs to be addressed. Mm. Because the um, you know we both you and I agree that the economic system is designed to, um, in, in, with its invisible forces, share ideas, create innovate, allow for innovation, um, and encourage trading. Um, so that there's growth, but when the when the trade is existing between two parties that that have different, vastly different skill sets, there there's a, a level of exploitation that comes in where the the exchange is never going to be um, perfectly equal. Mm. So instead of me making um, you know a pair of shoes, 
and you making a pair of trousers. And if you make two pairs of trousers and I make two pairs of shoes, we can exchange on an equal basis. Mm. Um, it's more about if my entire country's economy lives on copper um, and we can exchange $50 billion worth of copper for five railway, for five railways or five highways or roads, um, then the, the people who have the skills to implement and that kind of infrastructure are going to benefit vastly um, from the you know the fifty billion dollars worth of of copper that they're going to get out of the deal. Yeah. Um, now, how do you assess the value of that infrastructure? Can you say the five highways are going to give me back that fifty billion dollars worth of opportunity or of potential? Exactly. Uh, it it it's it's probably um, it, there's probably a fair amount of negotiation that deserves credit. But it's never going to be an equal trade. Mm. Um, so that exploitation of the global economic system does allow the, the copper um, producer an opportunity to trade, but not necessarily a fair one. Yeah. So we, we need to engage with how, uh, how um, what levels of intervention should be justified. What levels of political intervention can be justified to rectify this situation? And that's what we want to talk about is yeah. um, what kind of, on what, we can, we can either leave the system as it is, and go with an anarchist uh, uh, approach, or we can venture further down the spectrum, and we can do that now, as we can talk about the different levels of intervention that would produce different types of systems. Um, and what would that look like in science fiction terms? What what examples do we have from popular culture that we could draw from? Well, the, the first one you just mentioned there, which is, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure many of you have fucking annoying Facebook friends who you want to punch right in the face, who talk about something called anarcho-capitalism, which is the principle of government should completely take its hands off and let the markets make the decisions. And in fact, in true anarcho-capitalism, there is no state. There's just the capitalist market. Um, for anybody who's on the fence about this idea, that's a very bad idea. Do not ever let this happen in the world. Um, because, as, as you said, capitalism, great at creating wealth, terrible at distributing it, and also... A lot of business people, and I know this comes as a shock to to everybody, don't often play by the rules. You know, they don't necessarily do stuff that's nice or good for people. And I think in, well, my best example of this in popular culture is the video game Bioshock, which has a, spoilers for anybody who hasn't played Bioshock, which Brock is one of them. <laughs> so I'm spoiling it. Yeah, you. I actually haven't but, played it. Uh, in, um... In Bioshock, it's an interesting thing. Andrew Ryan, who is a business mogul, decides um, in, I think it's the 1960s, he's tired of the um, government uh, intervening in his business affairs and he wants to do whatever he wants. So he goes in a completely rational style and builds a city under the Atlantic Ocean, which is the first thing that anybody would do when they're trying to escape government. Um, and in the city, he establishes a basically... That there are no rules. There are there are there is no government. The only thing that matters, in Andrew Ryan's words, are is the great chain. Every person is part of the chain because they are employed in different industries, and everything is is great. And it's you know it's 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 anarcho capitalism to the T. Nobody, there is no regulation, and the market will provide. Unfortunately, in Andrew Ryan's world, two things go wrong. One is the introduction of the addictive substance Adam, which allows people to rewrite their DNA, uh, giving them essentially superpowers, which is awesome for the player. Not so good for the people because they're addicted to it. 
And the second thing is, is that Adam Ryan, Andrew Ryan is not as good at business as he thinks he is because his main enemy turns out to be better at uh, running his, um, his own empire than Andrew Ryan is. So what is Andrew Ryan to do when there is a competitor who's doing better than him? Well, in a, in a, in a fair capitalist economy, uh, the one that Adam Smith envisioned, Andrew Ryan should either work harder, invest more money, try and innovate and, uh, you know, just do better, uh, to, to, to reduce the competition. If he can't do that, then he must just die. That's just the, the, the notion of capitalism, survival of the fittest. Andrew Ryan is just not cut out for it. But that's not obviously what Andrew Ryan does. No, he goes on a fucking extreme bender and tries to undercut his, uh, his, uh, uh, rivals by, um, you know, in- intimidation and murder tactics and a whole lot of really bad things and starts to say that this is for the greater good of Rapture, which is the name of the city. Um, and obviously at the same time, people are going insane because they're all addicted to a substance that makes them, that rewrites their DNA. I don't know why anybody didn't think that that was not a good idea. But like, as, as, you know, almost, uh, silly the, 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 um, the, the, the metaphor is, this is, I, I think that this is exactly what would happen in a situation where you, you, you have anarcho-capitalism. Because if there is no governing body that can at least say, you know, well, cause one of the first things is we need contract enforcement. If I make an agreement with you that you're going to buy X amount of goods for X amount of dollars, um, who's going to enforce that contract? If it's not the government, then I have to hire my own goons. What the, f- like, so yeah. now everybody's got a private police force and you can see just yeah. from that example, we've already taken a step down a very slippery slope of just chaos. So, I mean, no, I think the, that, that pretty much proves anarcho-capitalism is, is just. No, well, it, it just proves that there's one point against it. There's another point in um, industries of limited resources. The first mover often gains an unfair advantage in the, in the sector and they can easily monopolize the sector since they, you know, they control the resources. Nobody else gets a chance to compete. Yeah. Um, we're not Which against the case of Facebook to a certain extent. Uh, uh, to a certain extent. Um, yeah, I remember they were, they, they were competing at, at, at the beginning with, um, MySpace and, um, mm. yeah, they had you know, a few other social networks that provided digital profiles. So they're not the only ones with that service, but um, once they hit a critical mass, uh, especially in social networking, where most people are going to find their friends on one particular platform, such as Facebook, there's no incentive to go anywhere else. So since they've already yeah. signed up to that, now it's going to be very difficult to break into that market. Mm. I still don't know why Zuckerberg earns so much money. I don't even know exactly what people pay him for. What service is he providing? That advertising. Just advertising. That's how well, he makes his money. And selling data. Many, That's and, what Facebook and, does. Sells data and advertising revenue. And, uh, and many businesses are going that way now with advertising. Anyway, we're getting away from the point is the opportunities mm-hmm. for monopolies in, in, in uh, industries of limited resources don't allow for competition. Um, mm. and we think you know, competition is one of the best reasons why the capital system is so successful. Mm. Um, it does have its downsides. You know, there, there are certain anti, um, antitrust practices and anti-competitive practices are just undercutting the competition. Um, that could be, you know, that in many countries is legal. Um, mm. So that's another reason why you need intervention, to, intervention, government intervention is to uphold a certain state of uh, opportunistic competition. But, um, we, you know, it, to just run that anarchically would detriment the, 
we ditch them at the, the majority. But that's and that's also the basic level of intervention. You know, that's just saying, uh, you know, here are the rules. Abide by these rules, and uh, you know what happens after that is is up to you. If you make an obscene amount of wealth and that doesn't get redistributed, then too bad. You know, that that's okay. I mean, that, we're still talking about a very basic level of intervention um, to solve the you know the uh, Bioshock problem. It's basically just creating a, a set of rules and regulations so that people don't fucking kill each other. But given the power that comes with that amount of concentra- with that concentration of wealth, with that amount of wealth, um, like minimal interference um, or a small government can be captured uh, by a powerful and wealthy individual. So, mm. like in in the movie Elysium with Matt Damon and Charlton mm. Copley, you see how the government intervenes only to preserve the status quo. They're only interested in making sure that the the rich capitalists and the, and the high end earners and business owners all have an opportunity to exploit the workforce as they see fit and live in a style that as they see fit. And mm. the government only preserves that system. It's not um, strong handed enough, or autonomous enough uh, to step away and try and fix the problem at at large to try and uh, mm. uplift the poorest of the poor to allow them the same opportunities against it being exploited. It's in that situation that Matt Damon's character has to sort of break out um, to uh, to reach the the high levels of Elysium, which is like a city hovering above Earth, and uh, it's done that deliberately to separate the rich from the poor. Yeah. So that everybody who lives on Earth in in that in that form, they're all suffering. They're all very poor. They don't have access to healthcare, which is where Matt Damon's character comes in, and he tries to help someone who desperately needs access to the top quality healthcare services, which are available on the Elysium structure or um, city floating above Earth's surface. Yeah. Um, and so eventually he makes it up there with the most proficient use of a <laughs> metallic exoskeleton to destroy Shalto Copley and all the evil forces preventing his poor ass from using anti-cancer medicine. Um, and it's a pretty cool like, movie. The thing is in that... Yeah, I like that. I mean, the movie got shot on a lot, but I mean, I enjoyed yeah. it. The thing in that movie, though, is uh, obviously, I think that the interesting concept there is state capture, which I'm not sure if we've ever discussed in depth, but uh, state capture is the political is the political notion of when political institutions, so whatever they may be, whether you're talking about parliament or the legislature itself, or smaller institutions like the environmental protection Well, parliament agency. is the legislature, Peter, just to let you know. Oh, well, I, I meant like, you know, the way they don't call it parliament. Like in America, it's called the Senate. That's why I went to the legislature. So I was just trying to make it more broad for our international fan base. Thanks, Brock. God. Okay, well, don't make, you, don't, make you, don't make yourself sound uneducated. No? <laughs> um, but or in uh, countries like America where the uh, Environmental Protection Agency and some other um, agencies have managed to have been seized by corporate interests. Now, when that happens, we call it state capture. It's when elites in the society manage to gain control of things that should be governed by the people, by by the government. Now, in Elysium, what's interesting is that that's happened. It's done. It's over. They won. The elites fucking won. They built a huge motherfucking donuts space station, and they live above the earth. Fuck everybody else. But they have these mad... They've got wonder... Beds that basically can heal any wound. Uh, I think that that's it. that's how they're described in the movie. Like they just like, can heal anything. Um, now at the in the of it, again spoilers. Uh, so at the end of the movie, I think what Matt Damon does is he registers everybody on Earth as a citizen of Elysium, 
so that the robots of Elysium have to send then send down these uh, bio beds to Earth, and so that anybody can use them. Now that sounds awesome, but if you just extend the logic one little step further. I mean, I, how much do those biobeds cost to run? Like, I mean, they seem pretty technologically advanced. So I imagine you need quite a bit of power to run that shit. So, you know, maybe Elysium can only afford to run it for a very small amount of people. Um, is there enough energy on Earth to do that? I don't know. But it raises an interesting point that not, and if you bring it to today's world, we can't all afford to live like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or Donald fucking Trump. <laughs> like that's not possible that, that's absolutely not possible but we can all live a very comfortable middle class life so the choice is in elysium like you know maybe you shouldn't get into the bio bed if you've got the flu or if you if you broke your leg um you know you can just get antibiotics like a normal person if you've got cancer though yeah like get into the bio bed um but i think in elysium the, the rich people were using it to stay young and stuff like that so the problem there in Elysium, um, and this can often happen, like I said, with, with low levels of intervention, is they're not, it's not strong enough to actually make a difference. Yeah. Um, and it opens itself up to capture. So what, what stronger types of intervention could we consider? Um, I'm thinking something like Gattaca, maybe? Yeah. Well, Gattaca is an interesting example because it's an, because I mean, in Elysium, the government is a dick. Um, yeah. you know, that's, yeah. In Gattaca, One giant phallus. <laughs> just an asshole. Fact, they're an asshole. To, they're an asshole floating the in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> the metallic sphinx. <laughs> but in Gattaca, where the government doesn't play a huge, huge role, but Gattaca basically provides us with a, a universe that we might be heading to fairly quickly, where genetic engineering um, and eugenics is freely available to everybody. So. When you're born, your parents can uh, genetically engineer you so that you are less susceptible to all different kinds of conditions. Um, sounds great in theory, but what it ends up doing is it creates a two-tiered society. One tier of society are the people who are born with these great genetic advancements. You know, they, they, can't, they don't have superpowers or anything, but they're like, you know, they're stronger, they're faster, they're smarter, uh, and they don't get sick as often kind of thing. Um, and they're in, in Gattaca, they're called the Valids. And in um, the other people are the people who are naturally born, um, who might be susceptible to genetic disorders or a whole bunch of other things. And those are called the invalids, which terrible name. Um, and the, in this in this story, Ethan Hawke is an invalid, so he's he's not allowed to do a whole bunch of stuff. Now, in this world, the government, the, the state, has explicitly made a law stating that it is illegal to discriminate against people on the basis of their genetic makeup. However, the movie shows us that this happens anyway. And that sounds pretty similar to the world we live in today. It is illegal to discriminate uh, um, against people on the basis of their ethnic or racial or gender background or even their cultural or class background. But it still happens to a certain extent. So... But what the movie goes on to show is um, Ethan Hawke manages to um, take the place or he, he gets somebody to give him their genetic material so that he comes up as a, uh, as a valid. And he, what he wants to do is he wants to go on the first trip to uh, Saturn, um, to, 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 the, to Saturn's moon Titan. 
and only valids would have, would be allowed to go there because they only they only need the best. But through you know, it's a very lovely movie because through hard work and suffering and you know personal <laughs> achievement, uh, you know Ethan Hawke proves that not only is he capable of doing this, but he is he would be a very good choice to do this, and he manages to fool the system. But I think from a political so perspective, how does that yeah how does, how does that speak to inequality in that society? How does the government regulate it so that um, those who are discriminated against, um, or let's not talk about discrimination too much because we'll get off topic, but how are those at the bottom end of society still being afforded a fair chance um, to uplift themselves and still have the same opportunities um, as everybody else? Well, that's the thing is that in this in this world, the government is not doing that. It's 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 said no, you can't discriminate on the basis of genetics. But, you know, it's one of those rules that seem to not be enforced that well. Now, what Ethan Hawke shows us, and I mean, it, I mean, it, I don't know if this was the point of the movie, because it was, you know, the kind of point of the movie is like, oh, if you try your hardest, you will do the best, which is not necessarily the case. But the point of the movie that, I mean, the, for this conversation is that there is a, a large group of people that might be incredibly intelligent, incredibly, uh, you know, have huge merits to society, might be able to promote, you know, one of them might be able to discover the cure for a form of cancer, whatever, who, yeah. due to their lack of opportunity in that they didn't attend the right school or they didn't get enough schooling or they didn't go to the right university, are unable to, you know, to to to, to take uh, advantage of those opportunities. And there, you know, yeah. there's an issue that I... And, like this comes from my own personal experience, and I think that you've experienced this as well, Brock, in that I come from, I suppose what I would call a lower middle class white family in South Africa. Um, now, a lower middle class white family in South Africa is much wealthier than the, you know, a, a lower middle class African family in South Africa. However, you know, my, my parents couldn't afford to send me to university on their own dime. So, you know, we took lo student loans and da, da 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 and I went through university. But what that meant was, so I got, you know, I got a degree, that's all cool, but what it also meant is that I, when I left to go overseas to continue my studies, which shows a certain amount of privilege because I was able to do that in the first place. However, you know, I have that opportunity, but it comes to the point where now I'm trying to start get into a career in development in you know international development which as a industry builds skills based on internships i yeah. given my level of income and you know the fact that i don't have any parental support cannot afford to do an internship i have yeah. to be i have to be earning money while i'm working yeah. now that means that i am immediately disadvantaged as opposed to my colleagues whose parents might be able to support them through an internship and again, this is, it, it, it's so easy for this to come off as, oh, you know, everybody's, yeah. I'm so unfair. But it's, this is an observation, not necessarily, this is, this is the way the world is. But now I'm one person. There are many other people I've spoken to who are in the same situation. One yeah. of those people may be, you know, the next, uh, you know, Alfred Nobel or Albert Einstein, yeah. but just wasn't able to get in because, the, and I mean, how many people in history that we just don't know about because they never managed yeah. to make it? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's what Gattaca shows is that you know Ethan Hawke, you know Ethan Hawke also didn't get didn't get there on it on his own. He had help. Somebody stepped out of their role and gave him the genetic material. 
He didn't yeah. do it on his own. And that's also like a huge pop culture myth that we have today that, you know, like you got to work hard. You got to do it on your own. Like, I think you hear it in a lot, lot of rap songs, you know, like, Oh, I made it to the top. It's all me. Fuck you. I have a car and it's a, it's a, it's a nice car. <laughs> I'm not going to rap. But that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Because like even Bill Gates, Bill Gates didn't get to where he is now without any help. The fact is, Bill yeah. Gates' parents were wealthy enough to send him to one of the only schools at the time that had a computer there, and that, combined with his natural intelligence, gave him the opportunities to get ahead. Yeah. Um, and which is a fair that, opportunity, and good and good on him to make the best of that. Um, but what absolutely. about all the people who 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 could do just as well? Yeah. Um, so there is. So we've established that there is um, a, a problematic amount of injustice. Um, how do we intervene to change that? How do we give everybody the same opportunities? Um, what do we need to do? And what? And again, can we move further down the spectrum of intervention in popular culture? Yeah, I mean, what, what were we discussing last night was our, our Starship Troopers, um, our, our Starship Troopers analogy. Um, yeah. Do you want to do you want to go through that quickly? Well, I think Starship, I like the Starship Troopers example for anything. So if you want to talk yeah. about. Killing aliens, reference Starship Troopers. If you want to talk about military service, Starship Troopers. If you want to talk about the best cooking show on the planet, Starship Troopers. <laughs> it's just, it's the best answer to all discussions. Um, <laughs> now, also because it's got an interesting concept, um, which used to be practiced in some countries, but it's not, I don't, I don't know of any way it's still practiced where you have compulsory military service. Um, well, Israel. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, but you, but based on that service, um, you earn your political rights. So you're not a full citizen of Earth, uh, or of the United States, uh, in, um, in social troopers, unless you have served the military, unless you've served, um, or unless you have put your life on the line to defend the, the planet. And yeah. that's you, an interesting trade yeah, well, service that. But you have to put your life on the line to, to defend it first. So it's an interesting trade-off between rights and responsibilities that you have the responsibility mm. as a citizen to protect society. And mm. only once you prove that do you earn the right to, you know, the opportunity to live in that safe society, being made safe by all the other people trying to prove their responsibilities. Mm. Um, so in that sense, the government has allowed the opportunity uh, to all potential citizens um, you know, the a chance to live a safe, uh, equal, non-discriminatory opportunity uh, of peace and prosperity back on Earth. Mm. Um, but you know, you first got to prove yourself worthy by fighting giant arachnids <laughs> and being Neil Patrick Harris and stabbing that slug thing in the face. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and I mean that's that's a, that's the Starship Troopers is interesting because. Um, when you, I mean, this comes out more from the book than the movie. Um, when you take up that service, the state takes care of you 100%. So you get a place to live, you get your food, you get your medical care, you get everything you, get you need. Did you get training? Yeah. The state becomes, but I, there is a point, and this is, I think, you know, like we've gone through these cases, there is a point where the state intervention starts to tip into the removal of freedoms. And, you, you know, like, because obviously more, the, the, the greater level of state intervention, the less freedom that you have. 
So you, you have to find the tipping point of where it's ex- where we're willing to accept this decrease in freedom for this amount of um, state intervention. And I mean, obviously, this you know it really depends who you are. I, I think this goes back to our discussion of of um, ideologies because a conservative and a liberal would have very different responses to this. So should the state be providing medical, you know, free medical health care? Yes, the state should be providing free medical health care. Uh, should the state be, you know, should the state be providing free medical health care for people who have been smoking for the last 50 years and are now suffering from emphysema, even though the state provided them with information that smoking is bad for them and might cause emphysema? That's a, I mean, my personal opinion would be, no, the state should not be funding that. Um, because that person, fuck, you know, that they, they made that choice themselves. Somebody else might say, well, no, there's psychological things you have to take into account. So I think we start starting to get into a bit of a, you know, these are the discussions that need to be had. Yeah. But I don't think, yeah, but nobody's really going to argue with, with the fact that everybody needs the same opportunities. Um, it's difficult no. to yeah. say to one person, um, you deserve a chance to go on and contribute to the economy because you're healthy and to say to another person, I'm sorry, you've got leukemia. We're going to lock you up here in this hospital. You have to pay for your own health care. And if you survive, good to you, but you're never going to get a job. Yeah. But that's, I mean, isn't that the problem? Is you're saying like, well, yes, everybody has the same opportunities, but let's be honest, they don't. If, if yeah. I come from a poor family, and I mean, this is, this is one of the reasons why, you know, the, the Scandinavian countries are doing better than some, than a lot of the other countries is because, you know, if you can't afford health care, you're, and if you have poor parents and you, you, your parents can't afford to take you to a doctor, the state will step in and provide that service for you. Yes. Now, they, if you're a child... Have, no, they seem to have balanced the uh, freedom, freedoms and intervention. Mm. Except for, well, Sweden seems to be taking this really weird anti-religious stance uh, recently, but I'm not sure how much of that is, is just one case of craziness versus the actual thing. Because, you know, they keep telling people to take down crosses and don't say happy Christmas, don't say Merry Christmas. Say, I don't know. <laughs> but yes, you know, so it's those type of things. Um, but, and this is, this is where it really comes in. This is where we're talking about redistribution of wealth. And this is where we start talking of the ideal situation. Because if the state is going to provide you health care, if the state is going to provide you education, it needs money to do so. And where does that, that money has to come from somewhere. And as you know, that, that money has to be funded from the super rich, unfortunately, because they're the ones who have the money to, to get it or, you know, because yeah, the state doesn't provide its own money to sit, you know, in, in and of yeah, itself. Look, it's, it's, it becomes complicated because it's not that easy to justify. If it were, more people, you know, more, can, more states would be doing this redistributive form of justice. Mm. Um, so it, it, you can't just say because you have and we don't, you must provide, you must mm. give. Um, it's not that simple. Um, there is an incredible no, amount of, of hard work. And remember that a concentration of wealth can be very beneficial to society because mm. especially if it's hard-earned and people have, you know, gotten to that position through contributing value into the economy, they're obviously um, providing so many opportunities to other people. They're providing mm. jobs. They've constructed businesses. They pay for people's training. They probably got scholarships and they pay for business science students to, you know, go to university. And they mm. support so many families. 
And mm. all those families have kids that go to school. Those school fees get paid because of this one successful case. Mm. Um, it, there's a lot of benefit to big business, and we support that growth, provided it's within a state of free competition and that nobody's being taken advantage of and nobody's being left out of that system. So if you mm. don't have enough of that going around for everybody to benefit from, at some point we're going to have to say, let's start making this equal. Let's start giving everyone the same opportunities. It will benefit everybody in the long run mm. to have you know le- less um, cases that fall through the cracks. It's just about this, how you do. It's just about how you do it. Yeah, and and doesn't this go back to our discussion that we had so long ago on the Panama Papers that you know there is so much money that's being flooded out via tax evasion. Yeah, and, yeah. There's illicit practices that could should definitely be curtailed. Yeah, and I mean, the argument is that, oh, well, rich people are moving their money to tax havens because they don't want to be taxed 40% of their income. And, you know, to a certain extent, I find that argument having some form of resonance with me, saying like, yeah, okay, look, you, if, did you build your government, did you build your company from the ground up with nothing? And, you know, now the taxman wants to come and take 40% of your earnings when you've worked your ass off for, to get to, to where you are. And it's yeah. like, yeah, I can understand you. But that being said, there are actually not that many people who are like that. You know, Donald Trump, yeah. who is an idiot and did not make, was not a good businessman, but he's my first example. He, he got a $1 million loan from his father in the 70s. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if somebody came along now and gave me a million dollars, I, fucking hell, I can't, I'm just, my mind is going mad with what I could do with that, you know, get rid of all my yeah. debts, you know, go and pursue my PhD, you know, I could start my yeah. own political consultancy firm. Yeah. Um, you know, but we've it, already spoken about Bill Gates. These people didn't get there on their own. So, I, you know, maybe, obviously, even sometimes the government just has to be hard and be like, look, dude, I'm sorry, this is, this is what's happening. But we're not taking all your money, we're taking... Whatever we 20%. need. <laughs> yeah, but it's also it's also worth discussing that you know everybody else is getting taxed too. It's just it perhaps is at a different rate. And again, it comes down to um, what progressive tax rate can you justify? If mm. people earning below a certain grade or in the lowest earning bracket pay say 20 or twenty five percent tax, income tax or, or business uh, you know revenue tax. Mm. Um, while you progress further and further up, the more the more revenue your company earns, the more tax you'll pay. Not just in the percentage terms, but also the percentage increases. So we might be mm. moving up to the thirty thirty five percent tax bracket until you know the wealthiest, highest turnover companies um, are, are having to pay forty percent. Um, yeah. And then the logic used to justify that is saying yes, all the extra money that's being taken off the really the top of the economy is being used mm. to plow back into the bottom, so that everybody can move from earning nothing into that 20% tax bracket so they can start their own small company. Um, mm. And in that way, if you can prove that, it, I think it's very easy to justify what you're doing. The, 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 my sympathies lie with those companies that have, that, have, um, that, you know, that have achieved diamond status from nothing, that have really made the best of their opportunities, and they are based in a country where the government is lackadaisical, inefficient, and at the, in the worst cases, corrupt and nepotistic, mm. where they, they just use their tax money to fund themselves and their families, um, then there's absolutely no justification for taxing anything, never mind 40%, yeah. if it's yeah. not being used wisely, um, and, yeah. ju- and it's not committed to the, the, the reforms of justice. Because so, obviously so all of these then, assumptions then, lie on the back of an efficient state, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, 
you know, we're having a normative discussion here. It's just how how much intervention should be justified in a perfect system. Mm. But there's so many other variables like political inefficiency and corruption that come into play. Um, but it still doesn't it still doesn't satisfy me. I think the perfect amount of intervention, even though it comes with a bit of malignance, is that a word? Malignance. Um, Malignancy. Malignment. Uh, malign. No. Anyway, <laughs> a, a malignant. A totalitarian government would be <laughs> Sauron. I think the way he managed Mordor was perfect. Um, yeah, you know, he wasn't. Uh, he had like he didn't have any mind control, but his strict form of hierarchy and in and interfaction competition brought out the best of his followers, and he would kept him very coordinated. <laughs> was, and uh, he had you know he he produced a massive industry in a short number of years. It's incredible how much he mobilized the orc forces uh, to be in a position to take over Middle Earth. And if, you know, that stupid Smeagol hadn't gotten in the way, someone would be living the dream right now. Yeah, and also, we don't know how happy the orcs were. Like, nobody was surveying the orcs in Mordor, because they might have been very happy to live in what what a, a, a blasted wasteland. That's maybe like their, their shiznik. They just like to live there. So, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe Sauron was just like, hey, guys, look, if we work together... We can achieve much more than we can. I mean, I think Sauron is the Orcs Obama. That's who Sauron is. <laughs> he looked. He looked across the river and he was like, "Guys, that minister of bullshit. They are so rich. This is so unfair. The, my yeah. Orcs deserve the same opportunities as those humans riding horses and well. I'm going to take. <laughs> I'm going to take all that wealth from them. <laughs> and by God, Saruman, you're going to help me, and we're going to relieve the Urukai of their." Forgotten state, then we're going to uplift the body, the body, the the forgotten people of Middle Earth. We're going to raise the orcs to be to be better beings. Yeah, I, my sympathies go out to that dude. <laughs> and then some asshole, fucking old rich white dude came along and fucked everything up by getting some illegal immigrants from <laughs> the fucking other side of the world to steal his property. And then drop it in a volcano. Like, what the fuck, dude? Can't, can't you see what I'm trying to do here? Doesn't he appreciate the development of Mordor? I mean, this place was a shithole before I got here. I got the big eye tower. I got a spider in the back. It's fucking awesome. Yeah, that, eye, that eye tower was like his Silicon Valley, man. That's where all, <laughs> That's where all of it happened. Yeah. yeah. And, well, I think, you know, at the end of the day, these are very, these are very complex but I think that that's the best takeaway that our listeners can get from this episode is firstly, the world is doing pretty well in terms of wealth. Everybody's doing better than they were, but yeah. there's so much goddamn wealth that a few people have way too much of it. Yeah. That being said, this is a result of capitalism, but getting rid of capitalism is not going to fix the problem. Yeah. Um, so to, you know, and if you have any, you know, the people who listen to this who want to bring down capitalism and capitalism is the worst, no, that's not going to help because we don't have a system that can replace it at, yeah. yet. Um, what does need to be done is government intervention to, to do some kind of redistribution of wealth. And that starts with provision of healthcare and provision of education at its most basic form, at least. I think that that's the... Yeah initial starts and then yeah. you know daycare facilities so that women can go back to work if if that's what they want to and or paying women to stay at home and looking yeah. after their children which is an economic service you know these are things that need to be considered 
better, you know. Yeah, it doesn't need to, when we say state intervention, it doesn't mean we, we imagine a bunch of Politburo bureaucrats sitting around a table discussing how they're going to fix the economy. It requires a huge, um, input from, from all stakeholders, you know, from business leaders, from industry, the, the captains of industry. They also have to have yeah. their share and they say and their expertise is valued. And, but to just yeah. stand there and say, no, don't touch my business. I'm free to earn and make as much money as I want. He's not going to fix the poor people who have to, you know, fix the plumbing in Silicon Valley and live in the shithole outside of the yeah. city. Um, that, because that's at just the end an of the unjust, day, unequal system. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the more and more unequal the wealth distribution becomes, would eventually cause the disruption of the capitalist system because there won't be enough people to buy your commodities, guys, which yeah, is what Marx in, said in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we support Marx's critique. We just don't support his solution. Yeah, exactly. But we are out of time. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. If you did not access this via our website, landsofleviathan.com, then please visit the site to find other materials such as all of our other ACOS tracks and articles. And if you'd like any updates on the website, please don't be shy to subscribe to our RSS feed that is also there. We also look forward to hearing your comments and feedback. So send us an email at landsofleviathan at gmail.com. It's L-A-N-D-S-O-F-L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N. And you can also find us on Facebook as well as Twitter um, under the Lands of Leviathan podcast. And if you didn't listen to that directly, then you can find it on Acast or any Acast supporting app such as iTunes. Hope you enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much.